Just one single verse, Romans chapter 6, verse 11. And bearing in mind all that we've read before, for that matter, why don't I just read some of that, verse 5. I'll begin in verse 5, but the sermon is on verse 11. Hear God's word, Romans chapter 6, verse 5. For if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. For he who has died has been raised from sin. Now if we died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. Knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. Likewise, you also reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And let us pray together. Our gracious Father in heaven, we thank you as always for the teaching of your word. And we ask you that now through the preaching, as you did in the days of Ezra, that you would uh, enable me now to give the sense of the, of the words, the true meaning, and that you, O Holy Spirit, would cause uh, the hearts of our minds to be enlightened, that you would shed light, that you would breathe life through the preaching, and that we would be affected by the power. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Likewise, you also reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's where we are in the course of Romans chapter 6. And as we continue to walk our way through chapter 6 of Romans and the whole of the book of Romans, we must bear in mind the overall teaching and the place of this teaching in the overall scheme of Romans. You remember the great theme and the great subject of Romans is the doctrine of justification by faith. And Paul hasn't lost sight of this here. He hasn't begun here his teaching on sanctification. That's something I've tried to stress before. He's still on his great theme of justification. And in describing that theme for the church, he is here in chapter 6 and uh, as well in chapter 5, describing the man in Christ that is the position of the Christian, the man who has been justified, verse 5 or excuse me, verse 1 of chapter 5, therefore having been justified by faith in Jesus Christ, he goes on to explain what is true of us. He's still doing that. Again, he's describing the man in Christ, the man who has been justified, the man whom God has caused now to stand in the righteousness of Jesus Christ, and thus whom God regards as righteous. What is true of this man? And you see, by uh, listening to that and sitting under that kind of teaching, you will ask the question as well. Is that true of me? Am I a true Christian man? Am I standing in the righteousness of Jesus Christ? Have I been justified by faith? The reason that Paul is here concerned to stress this and to bring this before us is because of uh, the fallacy of so many of his hearers in his day. Uh, what, I, what we call the antinomian, the one who was against the law, or even the notion of the legalist in his criticism of the gospel of grace. The man who misunderstands grace and who throws in the face of Paul and of the Christian the accusation, let us continue in sin that grace may abound. Now, again, that might be the, what the antinomian says. He hears this teaching and he finds a, a wonderful, in his mind, excuse to sin. 
Or more likely, it is the the accusation of the legalist who says, you know, Paul, if you continue to teach salvation by free grace, that we are justified by faith freely by God's grace, and that we stand in the righteousness of Jesus Christ and are regarded as righteous solely by the free grace of God, you're only going to encourage people to sin. They're going to conclude and to reason thus with themselves, let us Continue in sin that grace might abound. The more I sin, the more grace I get. Isn't it wonderful? That's the accusation. And that's what Paul is describing. He's describing the position of the Christian man and why it would simply be impossible for him ever to reason this way. The man who really understands grace and what it means to be united to Jesus Christ. But what perhaps we do not realize is that verse 11 of chapter 6 is the first statement of application in the whole of Romans. Thus far, everything he has said has been pure teaching. It has been pure doctrine. It has been a description of the believer, the true believer. What is true of him in his justification? What is true of him in his baptism into Jesus Christ? As well as, if you think of the earlier statements, what is true of the unbeliever and his condemnation? What is true of God and of his son and of the gospel of his son? But here in verse 11, for the first time, we are actually commanded to do something. And what we are commanded to do is this, to reckon what is true of Christ in his death and, reckon, uh, death and resurrection is true of ourselves. To reckon what is true of Christ in his death and resurrection is true of ourselves. Uh, you may remember the teaching of verses 9 and 10 had to do with Christ. In his resurrection, we see that uh, four statements. He's died. Uh, he has uh, he dies no more rather death no longer has dominion over him he died to sin once for all and now he lives to God in his resurrection these four things are true of Jesus Christ we saw that in the prior sermon but you also remember from what he says in verses 3 5 and 8 that if we've been baptized into Christ by faith that we have died with him and if we have died with him surely also we will be raised with him even now, as a spiritual participation in these things. And thus it is only natural, having stated not only what is true of Christ in his death and resurrection, but to state that as something that is true of the believer. In other words, to apply it to the believer. To say to the believer, do you know the same teaching is true of you if you are in him? It is equally true to say that you have died to sin and that you are now alive to God through Jesus Christ. And that therefore it becomes the task. You see, that was teaching, but now the application comes in. It becomes the task of the believer in light of this to believe this as well. Not only to believe what was true of Christ in his death and resurrection, but to believe it is true of myself. That I have died to sin. And that I have risen to new life in Jesus Christ. And that I am walking in newness of life. I am alive to God in Jesus Christ. And so once more you see the teaching is this. That what is true of Christ is true of me. That is the fundamental assertion of the entire passage. Romans chapter 6. It stands out very clearly in the words, you also. Likewise, you also. Who is the you here? We have to bear the teaching in mind thus far. The you is the new man. The new man in Christ. It's the inner man and the true self. That is being recreated after the image of Jesus Christ. Not to be confused. I myself 
is not to be confused with the body of sin or the body of death. Paul distinguishes the two. And he'll go on to distinguish them uh, in verses 12 and 13, as we'll see next time. Life is not found in the believer in his body. In fact, it's called not only the body of sin, but the body of death. The principle of sin, the principle of decay, the principle of death is sown into the flesh. That isn't where the life of the spirit is presently uh, active and alive and being worked out. It's in the inner man. You will find the life of God in the inward person of the heart. And that is the you whom you are to reckon as dead indeed to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. The new man in Christ, in contrast to the old man in Adam, who was dead and a slave to sin. But not the new man, not the inner man, who is alive in the spirit. And then notice the word reckon. That word isn't a word that we use very often. And I doubt we'll find this passage to be very useful to us until we know how to reckon Anything about ourselves. Do you know what it means to reckon something? Well, the word means something like this. To consider or to accept as true. As I think about myself in relation to Jesus Christ, I am to consider or to accept as true that I am dead to sin and that I am alive to God through Jesus Christ. There's other examples of this word. It isn't always uh, translated reckon. Sometimes it's conclude. Other times it's impute. Chapter 3, verse 28, therefore, we conclude that a man is justified by faith apart from deeds of the law. It's actually the same word there. I'm drawing a conclusion. I'm accepting something as true. Why? Because of what I already know. Therefore, I'm able to conclude this about the law in that case. Or chapter 4, verse 3. For, for, does not this, for what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Same word. God reckoned him righteous. Chapter 4 verse 9. Does this blessedness then come upon the circumcised only or upon the uncircumcised also? For we say that faith was accounted to Abraham for righteousness. What you see there in those verses and it's repeated many times. Is that God accepted. He considered Abraham as righteous because of his faith. He accounted his person as righteous for his faith. That's what the word reckon means. And the practical force of the word reckon here in verse 11. Likewise, you also reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Is that the believer is admonished to draw a certain conclusion about himself based on the prior teaching. To realize that something is true of himself that perhaps he had never realized before. He saw it was true of Christ, but he had never taken this step to apply the same teaching and to reckon it as true of himself. Or look at it like this. Paul is saying the believer is called to reason with himself about himself. To address himself as he really is, not as the old man in Adam, but the new man in Christ. To preach a sermon, if you will, to himself, to apply the teaching. To realize what is true of himself and to own it. Especially in times when he is tempted or lacking assurance. He begins by looking at Jesus Christ in his death. In his death and he asks himself, do I believe this? Do I believe that Jesus Christ came in the flesh and that he died for me and for my sins? And then do I believe that it is therefore true to say of him that in his death he died once for all. Never to die again and that in his death he died to sin. And that now by virtue of his resurrection, he is alive to God forevermore, reigning in heaven. Do I believe this? 
Well then, the believer reasons with himself in this sermon. He's addressing to himself. I ought also to be able to see that the same is true of me if I am in, if I am in him. That is the thought here. I reckon that what is true of Christ is also true of me by virtue of my union with him. And so when Paul says, therefore, or uh, let's see, likewise, excuse me, that therefore comes in verse 12. But likewise, you also reckon these things is true also of yourselves. What he's saying is this. Beloved, exercise your faith. Believe in God as Abraham did. Accept what he says as true of you as a believer is really true. Do not doubt the truth of your word. Make your life to depend upon it. That's what it means to reckon with these things. To accept them as the truth about ourselves and then to live in light of that. Perhaps an illustration would help here. This is a common illustration uh, in describing what Paul is saying here. The illustration of a slave who has been freed, but who is so used to living as a slave that sometimes he forgets he's now a free man. Now, what would you tell this man? You'd say you have to stop thinking like you're still a slave. You have to reckon with the truth and with the reality about yourself. Realize what is true of you now and begin to live with this in mind. You're not a slave anymore. Don't you realize it? Have you accepted it as the actual truth about yourself? Paul is saying you're no longer dead to, or you're no longer alive to sin. You're dead to it. You're no longer dead to God. You're alive to him. Well, it might be helpful here to remind you of the objective nature of all this is something which is factual, which is why it is placed in the realm of belief. And we should start with what is true of me and Adam. The reality that I have to reckon with. If I am still in Adam, what is true of me in Adam is this, that by virtue of my union with him, having descended from him by ordinary generation, I am made. This is the teaching of Romans chapter five, verses 12 and 19. I am made to partake of his sin and death. That is objectively true. This is what is true of the man who is in Adam, whatever he feels. You see, Paul is not placing in this in the realm of experience or feelings. It's not a matter of feelings. It's simply true of him because he's an Adam, whatever he feels. And until he comes to see this, to reckon with this awful reality, his participation in Adam's sin, and therefore the condemnation of God, which rests upon him, he will be lost. And so the unbeliever has to reckon something is true about himself or he'll never be open to the invitation of the gospel. But on the other side, we ought to see what is true of me in Christ, again, as an objective matter of fact. And there are two sides to this, Paul says. And so let us look at each of them in turn. The first, he says, is that I myself, the new man in Christ, is dead indeed to sin. And that is what I am to reckon. In other words, he doesn't put this forth as a duty. He doesn't say, I want you to die to sin. Did you notice that? He states it as a fact, something that is to be believed and accepted as true of me if I am in Christ. Thus, I am to reckon it as true of me. And you remember what we said about Christ in his death. Verses 9 and 10. There were three things. If I am in Christ, I likewise feel as well the force of the word likewise, beloved. I likewise, that is along with Christ, die no more. Verse 9. That is the old man. He is now dead. In verses 5 and 6, Paul says that the old man was crucified together with Christ. So that a death has occurred. Not only the death of Christ. But the death of the old man in Adam. What is the effect of the teaching? I realize this. 
that he, does, he dies no more. In other words, the old man doesn't need to die again. If he's died, he dies no more. I don't need to contend with him anymore. He's no longer a force in my life that I have to put to death. It isn't a duty. It is a fact that I am to believe the death of the old man. You notice Paul says in chapter 5, verse 21, that sin reigns into death. That is the final exhibition of the power and the reign of sin in death. And that is key to our whole understanding of our relationship to sin. And Paul tells us that once there's been a death, that the reign of sin has ended. Verse 7. For the one who has died has been freed from sin. That's how the believer is to view himself. As we come later to the teaching of verse 12, we will see that sin might still reign in our mortal bodies. He says, do not let sin reign in your mortal bodies. Well, it might still reign there, Paul concedes, that it often does. But now that I have died, me as an essential personality, as an individual, as a person. Now that I have died, it's no longer reigning. It ceased to reign over me. I die no more. I am alive to God in Christ. Beyond this, death no longer has dominion over me. It has no dominion over Christ nor me. That doesn't mean I don't die. But it does mean that there's no power in death for the believer. Christ has taken out its sting. He's taken the fear of death away from the believer. Hebrews chapter 2 verses 14 and 15. I know that death has no dominion over me. I believe it. But the key thought is this. That I am now dead to sin once for all. Along with him. Just as it is true to say of Christ. Verse 9. Oh, excuse me, it's verse 10. The death that he died, he died to sin once for all. Likewise, I might say it of me. Likewise, you also reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin. Dead indeed. Again, it doesn't mean I stop sinning any more than the death of the old man means that I don't have to die in my body. It doesn't mean that I stop sinning, but it does mean this. It means that I, as a new man who has been born again, am taken out of the realm of sin itself. That I have died to it in that sense. And now I am standing on different ground. I no longer belong to the kingdom in the realm of darkness. I no longer live under the influence and the sway and the domination of Satan. But I live in the realm of God, the kingdom of God. I stand on different ground. And thus I am now freed from its enslaving power. I enjoy true freedom. And if only I could recognize it. The slavery has ended. I'm now a free man. Do I know it? Do I live like it? But on the other side, I'm alive to God. Not only dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. And that's the fourth point about Jesus Christ. That is likewise true of me. Not only has he died to sin once for all, but the life that he lives, he lives to God. Well, apply this to yourself. Reckon not only that you're dead indeed to sin, but that you're alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Again, That is not a duty, but that is a fact to be believed. Not only that Jesus Christ is now alive to God. And that he's finished with death and he's finished with sin. But that so are you likewise. Let me ask you this question. Do you know what it means to be alive to God in Christ Jesus? Do you ever speak of your own wonder of it? Do you ever rejoice to say and to know I am now alive to God in Christ? I doubt very much anyone can ever begin to live the Christian life fully until he 
until he knows what it means to say this. This is meant to be the testimony of us all. I'm not only dead to sin, we say, but thank God I am now alive to God in Christ Jesus. It's the most wonderful thing about me as a Christian. How Christ has not only taken me out of the realm and the ways of sin, but now he has given me new life. And I'm now enjoying that new life. I believe it. I know it. I accept it as true. Or or think of it like this, as Walter Marshall explains it in his book, The Gospel Mystery of Sanctification, or, or, well, I don't remember the title, I have to admit, it's something like that. He says this, his resurrection was our resurrection to the life of holiness. As Adam's fall was our fall into spiritual death. If we be joined to Christ, our hearts will be no longer left under the power of sinful inclinations, or in a mere indifference or of inclination to good or evil, but they will be powerfully endowed with a power, a bent, and a propensity to the practice of holiness by the Spirit of Christ indwelling us. And so being alive to God in Christ Jesus means this. It means that I'm brought out from under the power of sin into a new realm altogether, the realm of God himself. I'm alive to God, you see, because we are now ever living in his presence. And we are now thus made aware of his presence and his power in our lives. Not so much you see the power of sin. That isn't the central consideration anymore. But it is God himself. We are those who are living unto God ever in his presence. And that is what Paul says you must reckon with. The greatest reality in your life now that you are a believer is God. God himself, the one with whom you have to deal and the one who is dealing with you in your justification, in your sanctification. The new life of the new man is like this, Paul says. It is the life lived ever before him. I may not always feel it, but it is what is always true of me if I am in Christ. I am always living in the realm and the presence of God, for he has accepted me in his son. And so what Paul is saying is this. If any man is in Christ, he's made new. He's a new creation. Once he was dead to sin. He was, or excuse me, not dead to sin. He was dead in sin. And thus he was dead to God himself. But now he's made new. And thus he's enabled to walk in this newness of life. To live unto God himself. To fill his thoughts and his life with God. And this is what we must ever keep before us, Paul says. The thought of what is true of us if we are truly Christians. The way in which God has become the great concern of our lives now that he has redeemed us and caused us to live and to reign with Jesus Christ. And do you see this is above all, even beyond our death to sin, what makes our continuing in sin unthinkable? Shall we continue in sin that grace may be uh, that, that grace may abound far, far from it? May it never be, the believer says. For I'm not only dead to sin, but indeed the greatest truth about me now that I am a believer is that I'm alive to God. Far be it from me that I should ever walk or continue in the ways of sin, that I should ever become once again enslaved to its power or preoccupied with sin itself in the same way that Christ is now alive to God. Now that he has been raised, likewise, I also have been raised together with him and seated with him in the heavenly places and my life is now hid with him. 
I, the believer, have been lifted out of the mire of sin into a new existence altogether. Do you believe that? Do you believe that is a true description of the Christian man? And is that your testimony? Is that your belief about yourself if you are a Christian? Do you realize this, Paul is saying? Have you reckoned with it fully in your own uh, life and your own experience? What it means, plain and simple, to be a Christian, a believer, and a follower of Jesus Christ. What it means, therefore, to be in Christ. How it changes everything about me. My relationship to this world. My relationship to my family, Jesus says. My relationship to sin. And ultimately... And happily, my relationship to God. And do you realize this as well, Paul says, that this is something God has done for me. It's not something I do. Still less does it become true in the act of reckoning. But rather the teaching is this. I reckon it because it's already true. Because God in Christ has made me dead to sin. And thus alive to God in Christ Jesus. And the way he's done it is by uniting me to Christ in his death and resurrection. And thus, I am called simply to believe it, to accept it as true, and then to live always in light of this wonderful truth and reality. I would notice here the ease of this reckoning. It's not a difficult thing, Paul is saying. Really, it ought to be the easiest and the most natural thing in the world. The reason is this, because it matches my experience. He isn't addressing us yet in the realm of experience. He'll do so in verse 12. He's he's addressing us in the realm of objective fact, that which is to be believed. But do you realize that this is the easiest thing in the world for the believer because it matches his experience? And so I'd wish to stress here that being dead to sin and alive to God through Jesus Christ is something that I am able to enjoy. It's something that I do enjoy if I'm a believer. It is uh, what the Puritans would call a key component of experimental religion, my own experience of grace. This ongoing abiding freedom and life that we now enjoy with, uh, in Christ and with Christ. In this sense, uh, you might say it's similar to the notion of peace with God. Chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore, having been justified by faith, uh, we have peace with God. Now, that is primarily an objective reality. If I am in Christ, I am at peace with God no matter what I feel. You see, justification, reconciliation. These are not a matter of feelings. Still less a matter of personal experience but they are a matter of facts the man who places his faith in jesus christ that man is at peace with god and god is at peace with him whether he feels it or not but do you see at the same time it does not preclude that he should feel it that he should enjoy and experience the very peace which is objectively true Indeed, I would go so far as to say, if I am at peace with God in this objective sense, then I will feel it. And I am bound to feel it. But it is not that primarily. It is not a matter of feelings. And so I'm concerned to stress this point, that in my reckoning of this, I find little or no difficulty in doing so, because it matches what I feel. It matches my experience of grace. It matches the life of the believer. I find God at work in my life in just these ways. Namely, I find that I really am dead to sin. I'm dead to its enslaving power, that I've been set free and that I'm now alive to God and that I'm constantly living in his presence and before his face and enjoying his acceptance. But I would be quick to add, as the true burden of this admonition, 
that we've got to learn to reckon it even when we don't feel it. When we find that our experience does not match the teaching, that's when you need it most of all. That's when you've got to reckon it as true. It's especially then when Satan comes with his arguments. Oh, look at you. You've fallen into sin again. Are you really in Christ? Are you really dead to sin? Are you really alive to God in Christ Jesus? When you're ready to conclude, along with Satan, that you aren't a Christian after all. Again, suppose you've sinned and this calls into question the whole of your Christianity, your claim to Jesus Christ. It's especially then, Paul says, that you need to reckon this as true. And you ought to do it for two main reasons. One is that in that very moment you've fallen into sin as a believer. You need to reassure yourself that all is not lost. That what you thought of yourself before your fall into sin is still true of you. And in fact... Your sin cannot change this fact, not for a moment. It's just then that I realize, and thus I reckon this wonderful truth about myself, that though I have sinned, I'm still dead to it. If I am in Christ, sin can no more condemn me, still less can it enslave me. Its power in these respects is utterly broken. Too often, I would say that we as believers live under a pretended sense of either of these things. Either it's condemning or it's enslaving power. We do not realize our true position. We have not reckoned adequately with what is true of the true believer, even when he sins. And if we did, well, then we would rejoice at once, even at our even at the times when we fall. We would not so easily be discouraged at every stumble into sin and every moment of spiritual darkness. We could say, even then, defying the devil. Defying the very darkness that we face or even our fall into sin. I am one who has died to sin and am alive to God in Christ Jesus. But the other reason is equally, if not more important. And it has to do with the whole flow of the argument here. It's that you've got to do something about your sin now that you've fallen back into it. And it is there just at that moment that you have a decision to make. Are you going to stay there and feel sorry for yourself? I can't believe it. I've done it again. I might as well go on. What's the use? Will you decide, in other words, that you may as well continue in sin now that it's find its place into your life once more? Or will you render another reckoning of the situation and of yourself declaring something like this? I may have fallen into sin, but by no means will I continue in it. For I see that I am in Christ truly. And that therefore, I shall not continue in it anymore. Indeed, because I am in him, I cannot. I have but fallen, but how easily I might get up again. For sin cannot claim me as it once did. Its power and claim on me is broken. I'm dead to it. I realize that now. So I can walk away and turn my back on it any time I choose. And I choose to do so now. You see, when you reckon that is what you are in Christ. And that is the freedom you enjoy. That's what you're able to do. But not only that, you say to yourself. But I am alive to God. And that is the most meaningful truth about me now that I'm a Christian. This fall into sin does not change that. Thank God. But what is more, now that I'm alive to God, I find it easy now to confess my sin and to experience anew and afresh his forgiveness. For God in Christ has accepted me. And I'm standing in his grace. And thus I find it easy simply to carry on as a Christian. Once again to turn my back on sin and to carry on. 
Not to continue in sin, but to continue this new life which he began in me when he caused me to be united to his son. A life which at times may be interrupted, but which can never cease because it is the life of God in the work or at work in me. And there's only one thing Paul is saying that can ever stop the believer from enjoying this to the full, the life of God in the believer. And that is for me to cease to reckon it as true, to cease to believe the truth about myself if I'm in Christ, to begin again to listen to the devil, believing the lie when the truth of God is set plainly before us. I say it again, the believer is one who is dead to sin and alive to God. And yet the lie of Satan is this, that the believer might again to live like he once did, to embrace the folly of sin. To be alive to sin and dead to God. Well, Paul, you see, as I close, is simply saying this. Do you realize what is true of you if you are in Christ? Have you reckoned with it fully? And this carries with it, this admonition carries with it, the suggestion that we get in trouble because we don't. Because we so easily lose sight of this, what is true of ourselves. I close with the words of Martin Lloyd-Jones on this verse. What he says is this. When you realize these things, you begin to smile. You stand up. You shake yourself. You say, what a fool I've been for being so depressed for so many years. Why did I ever allow the devil to tyrannize over me? Why have I listened so much to the accuser of the brethren? What fools we are to listen to the devil. You are indeed dead to sin. And you are alive unto God. If we but, or if you but realize that. If you but keep on holding it before yourself and never forget it, it will make you such that you will not fall as you have been falling. You will see everything in a new light, he says. And that's what I'm telling you to do along with him and along with Paul. Realize this great truth is true about yourself. And then you will see everything in a new light. Your whole life will take on a new complexion. Your whole life will be different. You will begin to live as you are meant to, as the true sons of God. No longer under the awful sense of bondage. But as those, the sons of God, who are led by the Spirit, ever living in his presence. Those, he says, who are dead indeed unto sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Amen. And let us come now to the table. Read the words of institution as we find them in Matthew 26, verse 26. And as they were eating, Jesus took bread, blessed and broke it and gave it to his disciples and said, take eat. This is my body. Then he took the cup and gave thanks and gave it to them, saying, drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. But I say to you. I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you in my father's kingdom. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Well, I want to do something a little different since we do the Lord's Supper every week. I, I, I feel the freedom to do so. Uh, the larger catechism is one of the most wonderful documents ever written. And I confess to you, I've been reading it devotionally. It's very helpful uh, in the formation of one's own theology and also answers many of the questions that we have. I was impressed. I actually read this this morning. 
with its answer to the question, what is the Lord's Supper? Well, here is what the Lord's Supper is. I'll let this serve as my explanation of the nature of the sacrament. The Lord's Supper is a sacrament of the New Testament, wherein by giving and receiving bread and wine according to the appointment of Jesus Christ, his death is showed forth. And they that worthily communicate feed upon his body and blood to their spiritual nourishment and growth and grace, have their union and communion with him confirmed, testify and renew their thankfulness and engagement to God and their mutual love and fellowship with other uh, uh, with each other as members of the same mystical body. It is, in other words, it's saying a time in which believers partake of Christ by faith. But it is all uh, to their spiritual nourishment and growth in grace. It's a wonderful picture of what the means of grace are. And this scene is a meal, a spiritual meal that we're nourished by. A spiritual nourishment and growth in grace, but also as a token, not only of our union with Christ, but as our shared union with Christ. It's something we partake of together and really everything we do together. We sing together congregational singing. When I pray, I use the word we because we're praying together. The whole thing is done together, this no less than the others. Uh, and so it becomes really a litmus test, doesn't it? And I'll just let this be the words of invitation, invitation and warning. It's a litmus test of two things. And if you read 1 Corinthians 11, you'll get this sense. What do I think of Jesus Christ and connected with him, his sacrament that he's instituted by which he invites me to himself? What do I think of him, his body, his blood, his death, his sacrament, his table? But what do I think at the same time of his people? Am I at peace with him? Am I at peace with my brother? Am I able to partake as one act of corporate faith with them? Our shared interests, our shared faith in Jesus Christ and my my interest as well in my brother. So when you partake, you are to think not only of yourself, but of the church and of your brother. That is the test that you ought to apply to yourself, examining yourself. What do I think of him? What do I think of my brother? And if you read 1 Corinthians 11, you'll see that was the test, the twofold test the Corinthians were failing. They not only failed to reckon with Christ in the table, they were profaning the table by their unbelief, but they were acting selfishly. As some were taking so much, there was nothing left for the last person. They were forgetting their brother. Be mindful of Christ, be mindful of your brother. And so doing, examine yourself and partake of the table in a manner which is worthy. Uh, with those words, let us pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the gift of the Lord's Supper. We praise you for the communion it represents and it seals not only with Christ, but with our brother. And we ask you that by this means we might indeed be drawn more closely to both, both Christ our head and to our brothers and our sisters in Jesus. We pray this in his name. Amen.